Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Hello, and welcome to the MicroBinFi podcast. The fraternity of bioinformatics includes people with vastly different backgrounds and expertise. You can have a strong computer science background or trained as a bench microbiologist who later moves into bioinformatics. Today, we're going to talk about the advantages and disadvantages of these different backgrounds and what people should be mindful of. To balance out this discussion, we have a special guest today, Phil Ashton, who is a bioinformatician at Malawi Liverpool Welcome Unit based in Blantyre, Malawi. Phil in particular moved into bioinformatics post-PhD, and he will be representing the wet lab perspective. So Phil, who are you and what do you do? Hi Lee, uh, thanks for having me on, first of all. So yeah, so my name is Philip Ashton. I'm a bioinformatician at the uh, Malawi Liverpool Welcome Institute. Uh, here, based here in, uh, in Blantyre, um, in southern Malawi. I moved to Malawi to work on salmonella typhi uh, and invasive non-typhoidal salmonella. Uh, so it was a bit of a um, return to the kind of home stomping grounds. I kind of uh, worked on salmonella genomics when I was based at Public Health England previously. And, and in between those two, I, I spent uh, three and a half years in Vietnam working on uh, fungal pathogens and tuberculosis primarily, a few other things in between. And so I've gone kind of from the, the public health bioinformatics perspective, I guess similar to Lee, to, well, similar to all of you post-COVID, but especially similar to Lee, into the kind of academic role, just being a postdoc on a single project for a couple of years. And then I was a kind of the, the lead bioinformatician at OCRU for two years with a kind of remit to support bioinformatics uh, across the unit as a kind of micro, micro version of, of, of An Andrew, I guess. So then after two years there, uh, my wife and I, my wife's microbiologist as well, moved to, to Malawi, uh, where I'm working again on a kind of single organism focus, you know, salmonella lots of interesting studies going on so i'm kind of just leading on the genomics there and exploring options for kind of future uh, career independence so prior to that since we know you moved into bioinformatics post phd what, what was your background mm. on on the micro side so, so i just did a basic um my degree undergraduate degree was just applied biology and actually you know, retrospectively, I can see that, you know, maybe it was preordained, but I, I, I had to make a, a bit of a fuss to like get onto a particular module called genomics, proteomics and bioinformatics while I was an undergrad, you know, and then learn about BLAST and uh, things like that that you do in undergrad courses on bioinformatics. Um, so I did that and then maybe that was one factor that helped me got, get a PhD. 
so genomics was in the title of my PhD, but what, what my supervisors actually meant was AFLP. I did my PhD mostly in the wet lab with a little bit of RNA sequencing, which again, I kind of had to make a little bit of a fuss to get in. There was due to be some microarray uh, work in there. Wow, that's a dodge the bullet there. But basically as part of that, my PhD, there was this one chapter on RNA sequencing. Uh, I was based at Public Health England and basically I didn't have a clue what I was doing. So I went down to the bioinformatics group down in the, in what feels like the basement down at Public Health England and basically bothered them until they let me use CLC bio to do some, some genomic analysis. So that was my, my kind of background, zero command line or scripting pretty much, you know, a little bit of R and, and things. A couple of times I'd been kind of tried to learn Perl. Someone, one of the bioinformaticians gave me a, one of the O'Reilly Perl books, but I got about two pages through one of those. And then the kind of big change came for my first postdoc where I got a job uh, working with Tim Dorman. And then that was purely bioinformatics and kind of in at the deep end. Yeah, basically from there, I've been more or less entirely bioinformatically focused. I don't think I've touched the pipette in the last eight years. So were you there for the very first wave of bioinformatics coming into public health England? Um, I wouldn't describe myself entirely as in the first wave. I was probably in the second. I, was, I, I think I can comfortably say I was in the second wave. So, you know, Anthony Underwood and um, uh, obviously yeah, John Green and Tim and Steve Platt and everyone were, had been there for a little while before me. But yeah, I was there. I think the group, the bioinformatics group grew from, yeah, six or seven to 10 or 12 during my, my kind of time as a bioinformatician there. And that was the time when they started just sequencing every salmonella coming through the door, wasn't it? Yeah, so that was my, that was my kind of job, really. So I first, I started with a postdoc working on uh, E. coli 0157. And then after that, I kind of started as a, I, had a, I was quite lucky, I guess, in a way. I had a permanent job uh, working as a bioinformatician supporting the salmonella whole genome sequencing. Yeah, but when we made the shift from a kind of hodgepodge of different micro microbiological methods to just using whole genome sequencing for everything. So that was an incredibly exciting time and you know, really fulfilling period in my career. You know, the, there's just something about when the phase when everything's beginning, that actually you have a lot of freedom. You know, you're, you're not so much constrained by how things have always been done. And so you have a lot of freedom and you have potentially a lot of influence at a relatively junior stage in my career. So yeah, that was, that was a real kind of high point for me. Yeah, I think in the public health space, people still point to that changeover in PHE and as, a, as an example of what can be done with genomics in public health. Even now, like that's, that seems to be a, a very strong legacy from from what you all were setting up back then yeah I, I certainly hope so and obviously you know the continuing work of uh, tim and lots of other people in that in that group but yeah just you know to talk about salmonella for a minute because uh, i know it's an interest of, of the bills at least you know one of the big problems with public health with sequencing for public health is that realistically you're looking at about a month you know, two weeks to a month lag between the isolate being taken, between, yeah, the isolate being taken and the sequencing result being 
generated. So if there's a bunch of people who get sick at a restaurant because they've all had salmonella food poisoning from some dodgy eggs, then it's not incredibly useful necessarily to have sequencing for that. But what, it's, what sequencing has really enabled us to do is find outbreaks with completely different kinds of epidemiology. You know, there's one paper, there's one uh, outbreak that's, that's been published um, where there was these, this contaminated feeder mites that people feed to their reptiles, the snakes and such. And lots of kids had got sick because you have to defrost these mice. And looking back, we'd gone, it, the outbreak had been kind of dribbling along for at least three or four years. And just kind of, that's the background against which we identify these outbreaks in restaurants and such. So really, you know, with sequencing, maybe it's, it's still a bit useful for the, for the restaurant type outbreaks and you can include it in your outbreak definition and everything. But, you know, the, the background isolate, that's what I was, that's one of the things that I really thought that, that sequencing could, could kind of completely change the, the paradigm of how we deal with salmonella in, in high income countries. So now we have about 200,000 salmonella sequenced. So, you know, when do you have enough sequenced? Yeah, when you're doing it prospectively, when you're doing it for a public health intervention, then, you know, never really. It's, you know, you still need those. It depends on your application, right? If you're, if you're doing research purely, you know, if you're doing evolutionary genetics or population genetics, then, you know, we probably have, if we stop now, then, you know, probably no one would cry into their uh, evolutionary genetic software about that. But, um, you know, if you're doing prospective sequencing in order to inform public health action, then hopefully that's just going to be the norm for the next however many years until the next generation of typing method comes along. Can I ask a silly question? From much earlier, you said that you start off in the, in the basement, <laughs> which I thought was yeah. funny when Andrew brought it up on an earlier, much earlier conversation. Is, is there just like a trend of basements back then? Or, or did you guys meet each other through um, the basement connection? Or, or what's going on with basements? There's yeah, there's a secret yeah. underground city of mind petitions in the UK. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like Milton Keynes, but just underground. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just a really, basically a public health England, they kept the buying petitions in this kind of slightly smelly office that was kind of tucked away at the back of the building. It wasn't actually a basement. It just had like an overhang outside and then a, you know, a backup generator. So there was basically zero natural light and it felt like a basement and it smelled like a basement. So yeah, it just kind of jokingly referred to it as the basement. One more follow-up question to that is like, was there a time in that history where you guys moved out of the basement? Did you, did you get to move out of there? So actually, what I, one thing that I thought was very interesting or is that, so me and Tim uh, were based in, we weren't in the basement. We weren't alongside all the other biopoliticians. Uh, we were just the two, we were embedded within, within kind of the gastrobacteria unit. And this is a kind of, you know, people will go back and forth on what kind of model they want. Do they want a hub and spoke model for their biopoliticians, which is, you know, kind of what we had at, at PHE or at least me and Tim were a spoke and there's the big hub of central bioinformatics. Or do they want everything to be centralized? And personally, I think that the hub and spoke model is, is superior. 
just because, you know, if you want these tests, that, you know, and these assays that we're developing, you know, bioinformatic assays to be useful, then really it's helpful if, though, if the people developing it are in daily contact with the end users, you know, with the microbiologists and the epidemiologists who, uh, who, will, be in, who, will, who will use those outputs uh, rather than kind of being in the, in, in the basement with the, the other bioinformaticians. I, I see the other side of the coin as well in that, you know, I once spent at least a, a month, a horrible month of my life writing a, a Python application that wrote an XML file to upload these 10,000 genomes a year to the NCBI pathogens portal. And then three months after that, discovered that one of the bioinformaticians downstairs had just spent the last month writing exactly the same thing. So, you know, it's just, that was a bit frustrating, but I think I'd rather have, I'd rather have that communication with the microbiologist and epidemiologist. So given your background, what was your first project with bioinformatics and then specifically, and then what did you find challenging moving into that space coming from a micro, like a pure bench micro background? I kind of distinctly remember my, my first day in this new job looking at, it was E. coli 157 genomes. And, and Tim said, oh, you know, just, just SSH into this server. And I was like, uh, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, I just had zero clue basically about the command line. And I, you know, when I'm training people now, I kind of try, I really try to kind of remember back to how that was and how that felt in order to kind of boost my empathy with the person I'm training which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. But I think that actually the best people to do training of, of complete rookies maybe are people who've learned, you know, within the last two or three years because they can still empathize with finding the command line confusing and not, you know, not kind of navigating um, a remote server kind of like second nature, by second nature, which it is to most people who've been doing it for, for five, six, seven, eight years. So that was, that was kind of definitely one, one aspect that I found intimidating. Uh, but, you know, at that time I just had, I had kind of, and Tim was very like generous and I had like enough space to kind of learn all of that stuff on, on the job. And then the other aspect was kind of the Python's coding. Uh, and I just remember, you know, the first, I was writing this, this pipeline, which is just a series of, commands shell of a os.system calls in python and i know i'm not supposed to use those but this was eight years ago and then going home and that that thrill of you know the next day logging on and seeing it all run for the first time and you know all of these all of these uh e coli genomes had been analyzed uh, and you know how kind of satisfying that was and then obviously you know that was absolutely hideous code that you know would I'd be ashamed to, to have now, but, uh, yeah, that's it just kind of, it's good to remember where, where I guess we all started at, at one time. So you mentioned that the challenges was the basic sort of technical stuff around SSH and, and just basic programming. Was there any major concepts that took you quite some time to understand that, people like Tim would just whiz right through and you're like, just conceptually, you're like, I'm not, you're not there with, you're not able to follow. Um, yeah, like Tim was and is probably a better 
a better coder than me. But I guess, you know, you, you pick it up in kind of two ways, obviously one by just like learning and bashing your head against it, but also by being in that group of, you know, five, six, growing to like 10, 12 other bioinformaticians, including some really great, really great people. And we used to have these Friday, like coffee morning, like round table things. People would just go around and say what they were working on. And that just helps you pick up like the lingo, right? The, all the terminology is like, oh, kamer, you know, kamers and, you know, like hash and what was it? Um, so it was like, you know, KHM had come out and I was really excited about that. And, you know, just kind of, you know, but hearing more experienced people talk about it as well, just kind of lets you advance so quickly, so much more quickly than you could by yourself. And, you know, that's where also like Twitter and are we allowed to mention the S-L-A-C-K word? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Twitter and, you know, the Slack group. Um, that's where they, they still provide a really important function for me now because, you know, I'm a kind of, I'm, there was a couple of other bioinformaticians in, in Vietnam. I think there's, there's a few people who do genomics here in Malawi, but probably no one else who'd describe themselves as a bioinformatician. So, you know, maybe even in the whole country in Malawi. You're the networks. only bioinformatician in the entire country. Well, I mean, I haven't, I haven't asked everyone yet, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm not sure where, where they would be if they, if they are here, because I'm not sure there's another one at, uh, at MLW where I'm currently based and I think we're probably the biggest kind of research center in Malawi but don't quote me on that so your lab meetings must be very um very interesting in a way you know bioinformaticians even when you work in the same building as bioinformaticians then often you'll interact with them online anyway so in a way I get to benefit from you know the things I wouldn't see if I was in you know a bioinformatics group in the UK which is kind of the clinical and epidemiological sides of things of infectious diseases in Malawi and I can still get my my some at least it's not the same as being in a bioinformatics group but I can still get some of the same interactions uh, on Twitter and on Slack. So how did you find going from like a public health body where you had access to to basically any sample you wanted, all the metadata, all the PPI, to say academia, where you don't have any of that, and you know you struggle to get samples, and you have probably no patient information whatsoever. So I was really lucky, actually. Well, lucky, and you know, kind of chose the the projects that I did quite deliberately. Uh, in the at least that for the fungal work that I, I moved from PhD to do, the the patients had been in clinical trials. So the, the metadata associated with them blew what was available to us at Public Health England out the water. You know, you knew their, their blood pressure, you had like a thousand blood pressure measurements for each patient. And, you know, you knew what, how sick they were when they enrolled, how did they respond to treatment for all kind of 700 people in the trial. So that's really nice. And I'd highly recommend any bioinformaticians to go along to your local uh, medical school, see who's doing clinical trials for infectious diseases and suggest to them that they, you could put in an application to do some, some sequencing together. 
because they're so, they're so expensive to do. They're so well characterized. You know, this, adding that sequencing data on just lets you, is a kind of, you know, what do they like you to say in, in uh, funding applications? It's highly leveraged. Um, you know, they spent two million quid on their clinical trial. So, you know, you may as well give me a hundred grand to do some sequencing. You keep answering okay. a lot of the questions that I have. Actually, I I wanted to ask you what your um, what your support is like, and and a lot of what you're you're saying is that you have to go online, basically on Twitter, on Slack, on wherever to to kind of get support for what you're doing, right? Is um is your blog kind of like a therapeutic thing too in that regard? No, not really blog was mostly definitely started out you know before i was really very good at writing papers i you know i wanted a kind of some something a forum that would give me writing experience that was easier you know had a lower bar of lower lower activation energy than write than the whole paper writing jamboree and it's just something, there's just something about, you know, sharing, knowing that something's going to be public that like less so now, because I'm more confident uh, yeah, in, in my, in my work, but uh, you know, when you're a, a real rookie, you know, rather than just doing some aspect of the project and just, you know, writing up in your lab notebook or whatever, if you turn it into a blog post, then you have the extra bit of peer pressure in the back of your mind that makes you double check everything and kind of, you know, push push the project to kind of a neat conclusion rather than leaving things hanging so that was the the um, idea behind the blog originally and now i just kind of occasionally use it to post you know how to's and uh, and little little bits and bobs really do you see yourself as an academic or maybe a professional competition mm, yeah i mean depends what kind of job i'm applying for right <laughs> Well, you know, um, academic as in, you know, applying for funding and teaching and all of that kind of jazz versus maybe yeah. more professional services. Yeah, no, I, I think I, I do see myself more on the on the academic uh, side of things. Not sure the rest of the world agrees with me, but... Um, <laughs> so you want to keep your options open, you're, that's what you're saying? But yeah, I would definitely go back and work at, at Public Health England again, but... I, I'm not, and you know, a, a specific institute like, or, or working at an institute like Quadrum or something that has quite a tight focus uh, on, on microbes, but I wouldn't be very keen to work in a kind of general university core bioinformatics support kind of role, really. Uh, I'd probably rather leave bioinformatics and go and go and do something else. And you know, being more serious, yeah, you know, I think it would be nice to be back in a in a bioinformatics group. Um, you know, I often think of how good it would be to spend even just like one month or a couple of weeks a year. You know, at, well, maybe not Sanger anymore, but um, you know, Quadrum or PHE or you know, somewhere with a real kind of active core of of bioinformaticians. So, like a critical mass. Critical math, exactly. Yeah, just, you know, you just learn um, so much just by osmosis from being in, in those groups that I, I, do, I do miss. 
Well, we'd love to have you. And if anyone else uh, who's as experienced as you wants to come and work in Quadrum, you know, we'd, we'd have you as well. Everyone is always welcome. Obviously not now with COVID, but, you know, in normal times. Knowing what you know now, what do you wish you knew, like, before when you started? What would you go back in time and tell your, your past self regarding bioinformatics? Learn snake mate. How about uh, learn how to use Galaxy and also learn how to program in Perl? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Perl one for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that if I was to go back in time and give myself one piece of advice, it would almost definitely be really engage with a workflow language. Um, you know, a lot of what I was doing at, at PHE was writing scientific workflows. And I just, you know, bootstrapped them together with Python. Whereas more directly using, you know, Snakemake or Nextflow when it, when it became available, I think that would have led to some great productivity gains. So on a, on a technical level, I think learn Snakemake. Today, if I was telling someone just getting started, mm. they have to be quite strong with programming. You can't do anything reasonable with, with just mucking around and like yeah, CLC workbench or clicking around. You need to start thinking programming, workflow management, have to operate at scale. I mean, yeah, if you want to work at stuff to Galaxy, then you can also push stuff through that, but you'd have to want to learn the API, BioBlend API as well to really get the most out of it. Actually, I would say uh, interacting as much as possible with biologists is probably the key for me because I came from a computer science background and of course, you know, you learn how to program and all of that, but actually the biology and the in-depth understanding and the quirks of all these different bugs, you know, it's something you really need to understand from an expert. Yeah, I think I think that's what Phil had from the other side, really, which was interesting, was the was that knowledge. I get the I'm putting words in your mouth, but the knowledge exchange was crucial for you to to get to where you are. Yeah, I mean, I that... you going micro to computer, and then Andrew also saying the same, but in reverse. I mean, that that seems really critical. And it's sad that you still have pet bioinformaticians who don't get that support. Yeah, I think being able to speak lab has definitely been very helpful in multiple parts of my career. I would even add on to Andrew's answer um, that like if you're in the public health arena, not only talk to the biologist, but talk to epidemiologists or whoever else is in your area so you can get a more global understanding of what you're doing. Because the I also agree. I wish that I learned more programming early on, but uh, coming in with, with biology knowledge and public health knowledge is, is just so um, priceless. So thanks, Phil, for joining us today. We've gained a much better appreciation of the lone bioinformatician. I really enjoyed learning more about Phil, and I hope you did too. Uh, please join us next time where we dive deeper into Phil's story. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, Please subscribe and like us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group and edited by Nick Waters. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.